As Holy Baxter says, it is now or never. Whatever we do in religion must be done now. Remember this in your youth of all the means of grace, from the least to the greatest. Never be careless about them. They are given to be your helps toward an eternal world, and not one of them are to be thoughtlessly treated or lightly and irreverently handled. Your daily prayers and Bible reading, your weekly behavior on the Lord's Day, your manner of going through public worship, all, all these things are important. Use them all as one who remembers eternity. Remember it not least, whenever you are tempted to do evil, when sinners entice you and say, It is only a little one, when Satan whispers in your heart, Never mind, where is the mighty harm? Everybody does so. Then look beyond time to a world unseen and place in the face of the temptation the thought of eternity. There is a grand saying recorded of the martyred reformer Bishop Hooper when one urged him to recant before he was burned, saying, Life is sweet and death is bitter. True, said the good bishop, quite true. But eternal life is more sweet and eternal death is more bitter. Unquote. For the last thought which I commend to the attention of my readers is this. The Lord Jesus Christ is the great friend to whom we must all look for help, both for time and eternity. The purpose for which the eternal Son of God came into the world can never be declared too fully or proclaimed too loudly. He came to give us hope and peace while we live among the things seen which are temporal and glory and blessedness when we go into the things unseen which are eternal. He came to bring life and immortality to life and to deliver those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Second Timothy 1 verse 10, Hebrews 2 15 He saw our lost and bankrupt condition and had compassion on us. And now, blessed be His name, a mortal man may pass through things temporal with comfort and look forward to things eternal without fear. These mighty privileges our Lord Jesus Christ has purchased for us at the cost of His own precious blood. He became our substitute and bore our sins in His own body on the cross and then rose again for our justification. He suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us unto God. He was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we poor sinful creatures might have pardon and justification while we live, and glory and blessedness when we die. 1 Peter 2.24 3.18 2 Corinthians 5.21 And all that our Lord Jesus Christ has purchased for us, He offers freely to everyone who will turn from his sins, come to Him and believe. I am the light of the world, he says. He that followeth me 
shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. And the terms are as simple as the offer is free. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Whosoever believeth on him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 8.12 Matthew 11.28 John 7.37 and 6.37 Acts 16.31 John 3.16 He that has Christ has life. He can look round him on the things temporal and see change and decay on every side without dismay. He has got treasure in heaven which neither rust nor moth can corrupt, nor thieves break through and steal. He can look forward to the things eternal and feel calm and composed. His Savior has risen and gone to prepare a place for Him. When He leaves this world, He shall have a crown of glory and be forever with his Lord. He can look down even into the grave as the wisest Greeks and Romans could never do and say, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? O eternity, where are thy terrors? 1 Corinthians 15 verse 55 let us all settle it firmly in our minds that the only way to pass through things seen with comfort and look forward to things unseen without fear is to have Christ for our Savior and friend, to lay hold on Christ by faith, to become one with Christ and Christ in us, and while we live in the flesh, to live the life of faith in the Son of God. Galatians 2.20 how vast is the difference between the state of him who has faith in Christ and the state of him who has none. Blessed indeed is that man or woman who can say with truth, I trust in Jesus, I believe. When Cardinal Beaufort lay upon his deathbed, our mighty poet describes King Henry as saying, He dies but gives no sign. When John Knox, the Scotch reformer, was drawing to his end and unable to speak, a faithful servant asked him to give some proof that the gospel he had preached in life gave him comfort in death by raising his hand. He heard and raised his hand toward heaven three times and then departed. Blessed, I say again, is he that believes. He alone is rich, independent and beyond the reach of harm. If you and I have no comfort amidst things temporal and no hope for the things eternal, the fault is all our own. It is because we will not come to Christ that we may have life. John 5, verse 40 I leave the subject of eternity here and pray that God may bless it to many souls. In conclusion, I offer to everyone who reads this volume some food for thought and matter for self-examination.
One, first of all, how are you using your time? Life is short and very uncertain. You never know what a day may bring forth. Business and pleasure, money getting and money spending, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, all, all will soon be over and done with forever. And you, what are you doing for your immortal soul? Are you wasting time or turning it to good account? Are you preparing to meet God? Two, secondly, where shall you be in eternity? It is coming, coming, coming very fast upon us. You are going, going, going very fast into it. But where will you be? On the right hand or on the left in the day of judgment? Among the lost or among the saved? Oh, rest not. Rest not till your soul is insured. Make sure work. Leave nothing uncertain. It is a fearful thing to die unprepared and fall into the hands of the living God. Three, thirdly, would you be safe for time and eternity? Then seek Christ and believe in Him. Come to Him just as you are. Seek Him while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. There is still a throne of grace. It is not too late. Christ waits to be gracious. He invites you to come to Him. Before the door is shut and the judgment begins, repent, believe, and be saved. For, lastly, would you be happy? Cling to Christ and live the life of faith in Him. Abide in Him and live near to Him. Follow Him with heart and soul and mind and strength and seek to know Him better every day. So doing, you shall have great peace while you pass through things temporal and in the midst of a dying world shall never die. John 11.26 So doing, you shall be able to look forward to things eternal with unfailing confidence and to feel and know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle be dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Second Corinthians 5 verse 1 P.S. Since preaching the above sermon, I have read Canon Farrar's volume Eternal Hope. With much that this book contains, I cannot at all agree. Anything that comes from the pen of such a well-known writer, of course, deserves respectful consideration. But I must honestly confess, after reading Eternal Hope, that I see no reason to withdraw anything I have said in my sermon on eternity, and that I laid down the volume with regret and dissatisfaction, unconvinced and unshaken in my opinions. I can find nothing new in Canon Farrar's statements. He says hardly anything that has not been said before and refuted before. To all who wish to examine fully the subject of the reality and eternity of future punishment, I venture 
to recommend some works which are far less known than they ought to be, and which appear to me far sounder and more scriptural than eternal hope. These are Horbury's inquiry into the scripture doctrine of the duration of future punishment, Girdlestone's Daisy Irie, the Reverend C.F. Child's Unsafe Anchor, and the Reverend Flavel Cook's Righteous Judgment, Bishop Pearson on the Creed, under the head Resurrection, and Hodge's Systematic Theology, Volume 3, page 868, will also repay a careful perusal. The plain truth is that there are vast difficulties bound up with the subject of the future state of the wicked which Canon Farrar seems to me to leave untouched. The amazing mercifulness of God and the awfulness of supposing that many around us will be lost eternally he has handled fully and with characteristic rhetoric. No doubt the compassions on God are unspeakable. He is not willing that any should perish. He would have all men to be saved. His love in sending Christ into the world to die for sinners is an inexhaustible subject. But this is only one side of God's character, as we have it revealed in Scripture. His character and attributes need to be looked at all round. The infinite holiness and justice of an eternal God, His hatred of evil manifested in Noah's flood and at Sodom, and in the destruction of the seven nations of Canaan, the unspeakable vileness and guilt of sin in God's sight, the wide gulf between natural man and His perfect Maker, the enormous spiritual change which every child of Adam must go through if he is to dwell forever in God's presence, and the utter absence of any intimation in the Bible that this change can take place after death. All all these are points which seem to me comparatively put on one side or left alone in Canon Ferrara's volume. My mind demands satisfaction on these points before I can accept the views advocated in eternal hope, and that satisfaction I fail to find in the book. The position that Canon Farrar has taken up was first formally advocated by Origen, a father who lived in the third century after Christ. He boldly broached the opinion that future punishment would be only temporary, but his opinion was rejected by almost all his contemporaries. Bishop Wordsworth says, The fathers of the Church in Origen's time and in the following centuries, among whom were many to whom the original language of the New Testament was their mother tongue, and who could not be misled by translations, examined minutely the opinion and statements of Origen, and agreed, for the most part, in rejecting and condemning them. Irenaeus, Cyril of Jerusalem, Chrysostom, Basil, Cyril of Alexandria, and others of the Eastern Church, and Tertullian, Cyprian, Lactantius, Augustine, Gregory the Great, Bede, and many more of the Western Church, 
were unanimous in teaching that the joys of the righteous and the punishments of the wicked will not be temporary but everlasting. Nor was this all. The Fifth General Council held at Constantinople under the Emperor Justinian in 553 A.D., examined the tenets of origin and passed a synodical decree condemnatory of them. And for a thousand years after that time, there was an unanimous consent in Christendom in this sense. Bishop Wordsworth, Sermons, page 34 Let me add to this statement the fact that the eternity of future punishment has been held by almost all the greatest theologians from the time of the Reformation down to the present day. It is a point on which Lutherans, Calvinists, and Arminians, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, and Independents have always, with a few exceptions, been of one mind. Since the writings of the most eminent and learned reformers such the works of the Puritans, such the few literary remains of the men who revived English Christianity in the 18th century, and as a rule, you will always get one harmonious answer. Within the last few years, no doubt, the non-eternity of future punishment has found several zealous advocates, but up to a comparatively modern date, I unhesitatingly assert the supporters of Canon Farrar's views have always been an extremely small minority among Orthodox Christians. That fact is, at any rate, worth remembering. As to the difficulties besetting the old or common view of future punishment, I admit their existence and I do not pretend to explain them but I always expect to find many mysteries in revealed religion, and I am not stumbled by them. I see other difficulties in the world which I cannot solve, and I am content to wait for their solution. What a mighty divine has called the mystery of God, the great mystery of his suffering vice and confusion to prevail, the origin of evil, the permission of cruelty, oppression, poverty, and disease, the allowed sickness and death of infants before they know good from evil, the future prospects of the heathen who never heard the gospel, the triumphs of ignorance which God has winked at, the condition of China, Hindustan, and Central Africa for the last eight hundred years. All these things are to my mind great knots which I am unable to untie and depths which I have no line to fathom. But I wait for light, and I have no doubt all will be made plain. I rest in the thought that I am a poor ignorant mortal, and that God is a being of infinite wisdom and is doing all things well. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis 18.25 it is a wise sentence of Bishop Butler. All shadow of injustice and indeed all harsh appearances in the various economy of God would be lost if we would keep in mind that every merciful allowance shall be made and no more shall be required of anyone 
than what might have been equitably expected of him from the circumstances in which he was placed, and not what might have been expected from him had he been placed in other circumstances. Analogy, Part 2, Chapter 6, Page 425, Wilson's Edition It is a grand saying of Elihu in Job, Touching the Almighty, we cannot find Him out. He is excellent in power, and in judgment, and in plenty of justice. He will not afflict. Job thirty-seven twenty-three. It may be perfectly true that many Romish divines, and even some Protestants, have made extravagant and offensive statements about the bodily sufferings of the lost in another world. It may be true that those who believe in eternal punishment have occasionally misunderstood or mistranslated texts and have pressed figurative language too far. But it is hardly fair to make Christianity responsible for the mistakes of its advocates. It is an old saying that Christian errors are infidel arguments. Thomas Aquinas and Dante, and Milton, and Boston, and Jonathan Edwards were not inspired and infallible, and I decline to be answerable for all that they have written about the physical torments of the lost. But after every allowance, admission, and deduction, there remains, in my humble opinion, a mass of scripture evidence in support of the doctrine of eternal punishment which can never be explained away, and which no revision or new translation of the English Bible will ever overthrow. As the footnote explains, Horbury alone alleges and examines no less than 103 texts on his side in his reply to Whiston. That there are degrees of misery as well as degrees of glory in the future state, that the condition of some who are lost will be far worse than that of others, all this is undeniable. But that the punishment of the wicked will ever have an end, or that length of time alone can ever change a heart, or that the Holy Spirit ever works on the dead, or that there is any purging, purifying process beyond the grave by which the wicked will be finally fitted for heaven? These are positions which I maintain it is utterly impossible to prove by texts of Scripture. Nay, rather, there are texts of Scripture which teach an utterly different doctrine. It is surprising, says Horbury, if hell be such a state of purification that it should always be represented in Scripture as a place of punishment. Volume 2, page 223. Nothing, says Girdlestone, but clear statements of Scripture could justify us in holding or preaching to ungodly men the doctrine of repentance after death, and not one clear statement on this subject is to be found. Dies Irie, page 269. If we once begin to invent doctrines which we cannot prove by texts, 
or to refuse the evidence of texts in Scripture because they land us in conclusions we do not like, we may as well throw aside the Bible altogether and discard it as the judge of controversy. The favorite argument of some that no religious doctrine can be true which is rejected by the common opinion and popular feeling of mankind, that any texts which contradict this common popular feeling must be wrongly interpreted, and that therefore eternal punishment cannot be true because the inward feeling of the multitude revolts against it. This argument appears to me alike most dangerous and unsound. It is dangerous because it strikes a direct blow at the authority of Scripture as the only rule of faith. Where is the use of the Bible if the common opinion of mortal man is to be regarded as of more weight than the declarations of God's Word? It is unsound because it ignores the great fundamental principle of Christianity, that man is a fallen creature with a corrupt heart and understanding, and that in spiritual things his judgment is worthless. There is a veil over our hearts. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. 1 Corinthians 2.14 To say in the face of such a text that any doctrine which the majority of men dislike, such as eternal punishment, must therefore be untrue, is simply absurd. The common opinion is more likely to be wrong than right. No doubt Bishop Butler has said, if in Revelation there be found any passage, the seeming meaning of which is contrary to natural religion, we may most certainly conclude such seeming meaning not to be the real one. But those who triumphantly quote these words would do well to observe the sentence which immediately follows. But it is not any degree of a presumption against an interpretation of Scripture that such an interpretation contains a doctrine which the light of nature cannot discover. Analogy, Part 1, Chapter 2, Page 358, Wilson's Edition After all, what the common feeling or opinion of the majority of mankind is about the duration of future punishment is a question which admits of much doubt. Of course, we have no means of ascertaining, and it signifies little either way. In such a matter, the only point is, what saith the Scripture? But I have a strong suspicion, if the world could be polled, that we should find the greater part of mankind believed in eternal punishment. About the opinion of the Greeks and Romans, at any rate, there can be little dispute. If anything is clearly taught in the stories of their mythology, it is the endless nature of the sufferings of the wicked. Bishop Butler says, Gentile writers, both moralists and poetic, speak of the future punishment of the wicked, both as to duration and degree, in a like manner of expression and description as the Scripture does. Analogy, Part 1, Chapter 2, Page 218 
the strange and weird legends of Tantalus, Sisyphus, Exion, Prometheus, and the Danaides have all one common feature about them. In each case, the punishment is eternal. This is a fact worth noticing. It is worth what it is worth. But it shows at all events that the opponents of eternal punishment should not talk too confidently about the common opinion of mankind. As the doctrine of the annihilation of the wicked, to which many adhere, it appears to me so utterly irreconcilable with our Lord Jesus Christ's words about the resurrection of damnation and the worm that never dies and the fire that is not quenched and St. Paul's words about the resurrection of the untrust, John 5.29, Mark 9.43-48, Acts 24.15, that until those words can be proved to form no part of the inspired scriptures, it seems to me mere waste of time to argue about it. The favorite argument of the advocates of this doctrine that death, dying, perishing, destruction, and the like are phrases which can only mean cessation of existence is so ridiculously weak that it is scarcely worth noticing. Every Bible reader knows that God said to Adam concerning the forbidden fruit, In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Genesis 2.17 But every well-taught Sunday scholar knows that Adam did not cease to exist when he broke the commandment. He died spiritually, but he did not cease to be. So also St. Peter says of the flood, the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. Second Peter 3.6 Yet though temporarily drowned, it certainly did not cease to be. And when the water was dried up, Noah lived on it again. It only remains for me now to add one more last word by way of information. Those who care to investigate the meaning of the words eternal and everlasting as used in Scripture will find the subject fully and exhaustively considered in Girdlestone's Old Testament Synonyms, chapter 30, page 495, and in the same writer's Dies Irie, chapter 10 and 11, page 128. This concludes the reading of J.C. Ryle's Practical Religion. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com. 
by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.